0: Blog
1: Talk Radio. All right, welcome to another edition of Hoops Talk Live. My name is Randy Zelia, and with me, as always, the man, the myth, the legend, the man behind the microphone, the man behind the pen, the man behind the force, and the man behind the Yoda, that'll be Bill Ingram. Bill, how are you today, my friend? No, try are that you, again. Randy. Bill, how are you today, my friend? There you are.
0: <laughs> doing well. My my introduction gets longer every week. <laughs> I, I
1: I find a way to even make it even cooler. And we're doing it without music this week because I want it to be more gritty. And I didn't know which song you wanted to go with. I was almost going to do the NFL on Fox theme song, but I just didn't want to go that <laughs> route. I thought we I thought we were both better than that.
0: Um, Given that I so, never watched the NFL, really. I haven't watched. I watched the NFL avidly when the Oilers were in Houston. I grew up in Houston mostly, uh, as much as an Air Force brat grows up anywhere mostly. And uh, but then when the the Oilers moved to Tennessee, I didn't follow the NFL at all until I was in college, and the I was in St. Louis, going to Webster University for my bachelor's degree, and the St. Louis Rams were amazing. Uh, Kurt Warner was a great story. And uh, but other than that, then then they too left, and I feel like I'm sort of a curse and' waiting for the Cowboys to leave Dallas. So <laughs> I just don't follow it at all.
1: <laughs> and it's and it's funny, and it's funny you say that too, because us giant fans up here would love for Dallas to leave. I uh, would love the Cowboys to leave Dallas. So that's uh, perfect the way you just said that. So uh, interesting topic today before we jump into this week's topic, let's let everybody know where they can find us. You can find all of our work, both audio and visual, at backsportspage.com. Uh, you can follow Bill at the Rocket Guy on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at RandyBSB. Uh, Bill is the basketball uh, guru. I am okay at a lot of different things. I think that's the best way of saying it. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, I guess I'm not giving myself enough credit, but that's okay. Um, Bill, before we jump into the topic of, of, of hand, which is the Nets and the Spurs from the 2003 NBA Finals wanted to know if you got any feedback from last week's episode where we decided to tackle the Denver Nuggets and the Seattle Supersonics.
0: Well, the feedback I got was, you know, that's, of course, my my buddy Travis who is in Denver and uh, uh, covered the Nuggets for me when I was running HoopsWorld.com and then eventually – basketball insiders, uh, when, when USA Today Sports acquired Hoops World and then went out of business or went bankrupt and stopped paying us, um, you know, his feedback was, hey, that is still the greatest moments in Nuggets history. And it's sad because they lost they lost immediately <laughs> in the second round. But the Denver Nuggets, it says a lot about that franchise that their greatest moment in history was uh, getting out of the first round, granted against those first round Sonics. So uh, that's one of the great moments in sports history. You watch sports because there's an expectation that you're, you sort of know what you think is going to happen, and sometimes what you think is going to happen doesn't. And that series is one of the really iconic moments when the unexpected happens, and I think that's uh, – of course, that's why we chose it. But uh, I've had a lot of people tell me, wow, I, you know, some people have forgotten. Uh, not anybody in Denver, of course, but <laughs> but or Seattle. <laughs> But elsewhere, people were like, oh, I'd totally forgotten about uh, all the um, sort of surrounding events uh, that transpired to make that series what it was.
1: Yeah, and the feedback I got was, again, people forgot how awesome it was. And also people forgot that, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, people had forgotten how amazing the Seattle Supersonics were at that time frame. that they went through so many great seasons and being the number one seed, being a number three seed over the next couple of years, and they didn't pull up, you know, they weren't able to pull the trigger and get to that next level, which funny, we can transition into this week's topic, and Bill, I, because you and I were both there, and we wanted to sort of give a background and lead up to the series, I almost feel that this can be a two-part episode, because we, you were around San Antonio around this time, I was with the Nets at this point so I guess we'll start it I guess I'll start it with the Nets at this point the background of how we got here to the 2003 NBA Finals and where how we got here was in, in 2001 the Phoenix Suns traded away Jason Kidd for Stephon Marbury and Johnny Newman uh, Chris Dudley came along with, uh, with, with Jason Kidd but the Nets had already been there, had already done that. Chris Dudley wasn't interested. The Nets weren't interested, so they immediately bought out Chris Dudley. And Jason Kidd joked around with the local Portland media on Media politician. Day. He became a politician. Yes, which, why, why wouldn't he? Um, yeah. You know, so, <laughs> he, came, he, came to, he came to New Jersey and, and actually joked with the media on Media Day, which, by the way, Media Day back then was not what it is now. And Jason <laughs> Kidd was joking around with the media, saying this, hoping to be a 41-41 team. And after an amazing run with the Nets, their first year, they finished with 52 wins, made it to the NBA Finals against the Los Angeles Lakers, of all teams, and got swept in the NBA Finals, that had, a, that had an amazing run, including an epic Eastern Conference championship battle with the Boston Celtics. Fast forward the nets become another favorite again for the here for the I'm trying to Bill. I'm trying to figure out the best way how to say this because when you're repeating as a conference champion, it's not easy by any means
0: no, it's not because you have a you have a target on your back and you hear every team say this uh, the you and Steph Curry has talked about it um, and even now we hear the Warriors talking about wow it's It's going to be different. Draymond Green said, hey, we're not entering the season as the favorites this year. And we kind of like that position, you know, because when you're the defending champs, whether it's conference champs or finals champs, uh, you know, every team is you're going to get the best game of the season from every team that you play, even the worst team in the league is going to have a great game against you because every team wants to beat you. So it does create a different dynamic night in and night out.
1: And what was interesting about the Nets, the Nets had Keith Van Horn at the time, and they traded him during the offseason and moved him over to the Philadelphia 76ers. And with that move, they brought in a, a guy you might have heard of that we talked about, a little bit about last week by the name of Dickembe Mutombo. Mal Mutombo, of course, breaks his hand 13 games into the season, and you now traded away your one of your most better scorers and, and you went in favor of Richard Jefferson. And you now have a little bit of an issue on your hand because you have... You have no starting center. You have Jason Collins and Aaron Williams, which at the same time, at that time, were not bad. We're not bad players, not bad filling guys for what they have. You and I have always had this conversation. If you have a guy who's a prolific power forward, you don't want to have a guy who's just going to pick up the pieces at the
0: center position. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, absolutely right. Uh, You make that move because you hope that Matumbo is going to take you to the next level and when the injury happens, it's a lot like what the Celtics 99. went through uh, a year ago, when you have Kyrie Irving and Gordon Hayward, and Gordon Hayward gets injured immediately, Kyrie gets hurt, uh, and that, what you envisioned, never materializes. Of course, the Nets came out a lot better than the Celtics did as a result of their respective injury.
1: Yeah, and and we, we can talk about what happened the following season afterwards, with more moves that they made to keep Jason Kidd, but with those moves, the Nets were were pretty much rolling in the Eastern Confe- in the Eastern Conference up until about midway through the year. It happened when I got there, though. So I'm not gonna lie to you. I got there and it, it was a disaster from, uh, from when I got there. There they were under, they were under 500 for the first month with Jason Kidd ever uh, when I got there. <laughs> so I guess I'm the bad luck guy. Um, <laughs> no, they finished off the season strong. They finished off with the second seed in the uh, Eastern Conference behind the Detroit Pistons. They went six games against Milwaukee, finally getting Matumbo back, but Matumbo did not play a lot throughout the uh, remainder of the year. And eventually uh, they beat Milwaukee in six. That team that had Sam Cassell, they, they had traded Ray Allen, and they bought in... Gary Payton, so they had Sam Cassell and Gary Payton on this squad. It was a very interesting Milwaukee team. Obviously, Gary did not put a lot of time into his 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 time in Milwaukee. <laughs>
0: that was a, yeah. <laughs> that was a
1: that was that was a wh- thank you for visiting us
0: mentality here. That was for my his, his, his my retirement account uh, years. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, that was that was well that was his pre-Miami days. You know that was his. His <laughs> pre-Miami days. So his Miami mm-hmm. days was like, this is my championship time. So, um, so the Nets defeated Milwaukee in six. What do you do? Again, you were out in the West covering the, the Spurs, the, the, the Rockets, and, of course, the Mavs at that point as well. What do you remember about that time frame, those first two years that Jason Kidd was a member of the Nets from around, around that well, you- time frame?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I rarely saw the Eastern Conference teams, and so my knowledge of Steve uh, 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 Jason Kidd was from when he was in Dallas, uh, but I always wished him well because I enjoyed, you know, he was a, a good guy off the court, and those are the people that I kind of, uh, there are a lot of people who are amazing on the court. There are few who are great off the court, and Jay Kidd was somebody that was really down-to-earth and interesting to talk to and didn't have a huge ego as a player. And so other than wishing him well and being interested in the the trajectory of his career, I didn't follow him closely uh, because, you know, I was tasked with uh, when I was executive editor for Hoops World, a company that I co-founded with Steve Kyler and Jason Fleming, my responsibility was to the West and in particular Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, and Oklahoma City, kind of the diamond around my area. So I wasn't intimately familiar with how his game was going, but certainly when they came down to playing the Spurs, I was intimately familiar with that Spurs team, Uh, and I knew that Tony Parker, Jason Kidd, was a a marquee matchup uh, in the league because Kidd was widely recognized, uh, as he is now, one of the great point guards of all time. So you had a young Tony Parker who had been drafted 30th, in the first round, uh, an unlikely um, sort of Cinderella story for him going up against someone who was already recognized as one of the great point guards and continues to be to this day. Um, so I saw that as really an intriguing matchup, as it proved to be.
1: Jason had a MVP type of year. And you and I, think think, discussed this during the Duncan episode during that 2001-2002 year where they played the Lakers in the finals. Obviously, we're not jumping into that playoff series or that playoff run. But Jason was pretty much coming off an MVP-like of year. And, yeah. you know, a different type of style lineup. They didn't really have the shooting. They brought Rodney Rogers in to be that guy. And Rodney didn't really pan out during that time with his time with the Nets. Um, no. It just wasn't a good fit. So they needed another shooter. Uh, they had a, a, a couple weeks uh, span where they didn't have Kerry Kittles, who had, was suffering from some injuries. and then Lucius Harris coming off the bench. And they eventually, um, you know, made some moves that was interesting. You know, they, they, instead of going out and getting another backup point guard, they bought back Anthony Johnson. They attempted to bring in Chris Childs, which was not a good fit for them. And uh, Chris Chris Childs didn't get to play one year as Jason Kidd's backup, so they've ended up bringing Anthony Johnson uh, back. So
0: I don't think I don't know if people appreciate. I don't know if people appreciate how difficult it is uh, when you're a general manager. You know, there are about five percent, five percent of the players in the league are going to be great no matter where you put them. The all-stars. You know, you can put LeBron James in Orlando. You can put him, you know, like, wherever you put him, they're going to be either a playoff team or darn close to it. Uh, He's going to be amazing no matter where he goes. Kevin Durant, when he's healthy, Brooklyn's going to be a force. Trust me, they're going to be a force. Um, You know, Steph Curry, you could put him anywhere. James Harden, anywhere. Russell Westbrook, anywhere. But most of the league, uh, over the history of the league, most of the league is about fit. And so Chris Childs might be great in New York, but you move him somewhere else and now he's not because the system isn't the same. The players around him aren't the same. There are very few players who are just going to be amazing wherever you put them. And so the task and of the general also- manager is to look at a skill set and go, okay, I think this skill set will fit well with the team I have in place. And those who are wrong don't last very long in the NBA. <laughs>
1: Well, then I can play devil's advocate with that theory. Well, not, or I can play, I can agree with it, and then also play devil's advocate with that theory. The one I'll agree with is you take a guy like Kenyon Martin, who Kenyon Martin ended up making a very hefty contract from the Denver Nuggets and leaving New Jersey. We'll talk about that again more towards the end. But he was a fit player. Whereas Richard Jefferson had success around the league because he was able to go in and contribute and be a solid uh, contributor around the NBA climate. Is that the best way of saying it? In that sense?
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Richard Jefferson so, contributed in a significant way on multiple different teams with different coaches, different situations. And there are some players like that. Richard Jefferson was never a star, but he was always, in whatever role he was in, he was good at. Exactly.
1: And, and, and I think that's the problem. Robert Ory. I mean, hey,
0: Robert Ory is a classic example of that, too. Never the star, but, man, was he ever important in every situation he was in.
1: I've come to the conclusion now that Robert Ori will get a mention on every show that we do because I think we've put him up every show that we do. Because he's one of the few players conclusion. who's
0: relevant to any discussion.
1: Have <laughs> <laughs> yeah. you noticed it now that I just said it every single week? Robert Ori is mentioned on this show. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's Our totally the, you know. <laughs> it doesn't I hurt love that it. he was a rocket I, I, I but.
1: I think it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. That if if we don't bring up Robert Ory every week, I'm, I'm going to consider the show a failure. That week will be an absolute failure.
0: Um, <laughs> you know that game, the seven, what was it, the, the five layers of Kevin Bacon or something where you can't name an actor who hasn't been in a movie with someone who's been in a movie with Kevin Bacon? And then I did an yeah. article one time where I looked at the... The NBA version of that game is the Dirk Nowitzki, the three levels of Dirk Nowitzki. You can't name a player who hasn't been on a team with someone who played with Dirk Nowitzki because Dirk played with, like, every role player ever in the history because the Mavs were terrible at putting a great team around him. So it was always sort of whoever.
1: (laughs) And so every year,
0: You're always one step away from Dirk Nowitzki, like every play, like Kobe. And I tricked it through, like, Kobe, through Shaq, through Hakeem, through, like, all these guys. Uh, And so that's kind of how uh, Robert Ory was, too. Like, (laughs) the critical (laughs) discussion somewhere in the mix comes Robert Ory out of nowhere.
1: (laughs) That's hysterical. I, I think it's the greatest thing ever to be honest with you. So, so let's, let's, let's 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 try and turn this back into what we were talking about. But um, so the Nets played the Bucks in the first round. They beat them in six games. Um, I'll throw a quick side funny story, which I know you'll appreciate. Tim Thomas, who was originally drafted by the Nets back in uh, 1997, was traded to the Philadelphia 76ers for Keith Van Horn. Uh, got to play against the Nets in this first round series. I had the pleasure of playing against Tim Thomas in high school. It's um, always so interesting to see how big he is. And, you know, Bill, you, you got to see him play. And uh, Tim Thomas was standing next to me, and I was supposed to box him out. and I didn't even bother. And he goes, aren't you going to uh, try and box me out? I said to him, I'm like, look at you and look at me. Is this really going to be a competition? <laughs> always, interesting. always interesting to say that when you're 17 years old. So, with that being said um, – <laughs>
0: Didn't he even wind up? I'm I'm not looking at my stats here, but I I talked to Tim on a number of occasions. Didn't he wind up in Dallas? It seems like everybody. He ended up in in Dallas Dallas in in
1: 2005, yes.
0: There There you go. See, I thought so. (laughs) Everybody winds up in Dallas eventually. (laughs) I can't wait until we
1: do a franchise episode and we just start talking about the Dallas Mavericks and we look upon how many players actually played for the organization. That will be a brilliant Um, (laughs) step. So after the Milwaukee Bucks, the the Nets went against and had a rematch in the playoffs against the Boston Celtics. Now, Boston was in the NBA Eastern Conference Finals against the Nets the previous year, made some moves, uh, and did not improve their team enough to compete and uh, sort of try to have the upper edge against the Nets. They ended up getting swept in four games. I remember going into the visiting locker room because I was an intern at this time and seeing Antoine Walker have his hands on his, his head in his hands and Sharon Miller trying to get a word with him and he just didn't want to talk. And I was trying to wonder at that time, what makes the Celtics even think that they were in the, in the class at the time with the Nets? Because the Nets had a little bit more of a complete team than the Celtics did at that time. And I'm not knocking the Celtics by any means. It's just the way that Danny Ange had constructed that team at that point in time. You, just really, you had two guys that you were trying to build around, and it just wasn't right. Whereas, like, look, let's call a spade a spade. The Nets hit lightning in a bottle with Jason Kidd and having a young player like Kenyon uh, Martin. They drafted well with Richard Jefferson and Jason Collins. They had guys like Kerry Kills and Keith Van Horn when Jason got there. So they were able to build a foundation off of that, and anything else they added was a bonus. The Celtics had two guys. Um, you... You, know, you were around this league covering and you saw a little bit more of Paul Pierce and Antoine Walker when they were playing together when they were coming down to Texas. What was your general sure. opinion of watching that Celtics team at that time? Was it like I, I, I just didn't understand the hype around it.
0: Well, I, I didn't either. I wasn't high on that team, and the reason is uh, and, and Antoine Walker wound up where? <laughs> In Dallas. Uh, but this was not a team – you know, I was never a fan of players who didn't play both into of the floor equally hard. And part of that is growing up in Houston, uh, you know, watching the Rockets as a dominant defensive team. Of course, Olajuwon still the all-time league leader in shot block, in, uh, block shots. And Vernon Maxwell and Kenny Smith, very good defenders on the perimeter. Ori and, you know, you had shot blockers, Otis, Otis uh, Thorpe. You had great shot blockers. You had great perimeter defenders. And I always appreciated the players who played hard on both ends. And that Celtics team, Paul Pierce was not a great defender. And Antoine Walker wasn't no, sure no what I it didn't. meant. He was sort of in the, the James Harden school of defense, which was looking at the other end of the floor going, why do you guys keep going down there? We score down here. Uh, and I, I just think an elite team, you can't be an elite team. You can't win a championship. You can't get to the finals. Without understanding the importance of both ends of the floor. And I think that was the flaw of that Celtics team. I think Paul did learn it, uh, obviously. When he got there, it was with a very good defensive team around him, Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen, in particular, Rondo. Uh, but at that time, they were not a very good defensive team. No, not at
1: all. And to me, you know how you and I have always had this conversation about sometimes teams lose games, they don't win, the other team doesn't win them, they lose them.
0: That's right.
1: The Nets dropped a 25-point lead in the fourth quarter during the 2002 Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics. And obviously the Celtics came back and won that game, but I always considered the Nets lost that game. The, um, The Nets just dropped it. And the Nets didn't want to have any opportunity of having the same situation again with the Celtics. They ended up sweeping them. And this was not much of a series. It was very exciting. The fourth game went into double overtime. Celtics were just not a good team. The Nets were definitely the class of the Eastern Conference at this point in time. And this led to the Eastern Conference Finals, though. We're almost at the Western Conference, so we can always, so you can start breaking down the spurs for us. But we got to the Eastern Conference Finals against the Detroit Pistons. And game one came down to the final seconds where Jason Kidd, of all people, who was not known for his jump shooting, his nickname was Asen Kidd because he had no
0: J. <laughs> yeah, no J. <Jay>. That's right.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no J. Hits the game-winning shot from the right corner of the court, which gave them a game-one victory, winning the first two in Detroit and sweeping the Detroit Pistons in the Eastern. Jason Kidd sprains his ankle, and that doesn't matter since they sweep the Pistons and the Spurs uh, were playing Dallas. The, the Nets had... Twelve days off anyway before the finals even began. I'm, I'm exaggerating the number, but they had a, a long period off. Uh, we, at that point in time, were you surprised the Nets beat the Pistons in the Eastern Conference Finals?
0: No, because again, I, I thought you have you have the one of the elite point guards in the league, and it's at the, it's at a time where point guards are just starting to become the ones who determine. Uh, the outcome of the championships and everything as the league is now. Um, And so I really thought Jason Kidd, you know, I have (laughs) one of my all-time favorite uh, quotes from Dirk Nowitzki and I have many favorite quotes that my career basically spanned his. I was in the Mavericks locker room for the majority of his career starting when he became a and he talked about Jason Kidd and he said, when you're playing with Jason Kidd, you have to be aware of the floor around you. Because he is. And if you're open and you don't know it, you'll with a pass. Because he knows you're open and you don't. And I, I think that <laughs> aspect of kids' game, they had the right mix of players around him, and they just seemed like the team. Granted, I had the Spurs uh, at the time, and if you could go back into Hoops World archives, I'm not saying this because they won. But I thought, man, that team is really the, one of the elite teams in the league. And if it wasn't for the Spurs, they'd be a, a, they'd have a rafter. they have a banner in the rafter.
1: Well let's talk about it. You know talk to me about the San Antonio Spurs. Another, uh, another season where they high seated in the playoffs was the feeling around the San Antonio Spurs at that time was this team's just going to make another playoff run maybe first, second round, and then on the next year.
0: No, that was not the feeling around the Spurs at all. (laughs) In fact, that's the opposite. The Spurs at this time in their franchise development, fully expected a championship, and they fielded a team that reflected that. Um, You had David Robinson, granted, at the end of his career, but still tremendously a factor, uh, in the paint at, from the elbow down. You know, he could hit the mid-range. He could, he could back you down and score in a traditional big-man kind of way. He was a force defensive, I mean, incredible uh, force. If it wasn't for Elijah One, David Rodgers would have been the best center of his era. Uh, incredible force on the defensive end, incredible force on the offensive end, and, of course, because of the season he missed, he's playing with Tim Duncan, who at this point is just coming into his prime and is leading the team uh, I mean, in that in that series, he averaged 24 points, 17 rebounds, over five assists and five, over five blocks, uh, which is an incredibly rare stat line. Duncan was completely dominant, uh, and then you had Tony Parker coming into his own as a floor leader and proving that he could score from some different places, maybe even out to three, thanks to Chip England. And you had the other element that a championship needs: you have to have some people with a chip on their shoulder, you have to have some players on your team who are just dirty and nasty, whatever it takes, who are from the hood, who are bringing that onto the court, who are, you know, and Steven Jackson, who I loved throughout his career, I loved Steven Jackson, one of the great people that I talked to all over the place and would even travel to see because he was just uh, a fantastic person. Uh, And then you had uh, one of the great defenders in the league, Bruce Bowen. But then you also have to have specialists uh, to get to the finals. And this Spurs team had that, too. You had Steve Kerr, who was nothing but a come in and, and drop some threes. Danny Ferry, his sole job. Even Steve Smith was on this team, didn't play a big role. Kevin Willis, towards the end of his career, they had size. Malik Rose, an incredible force off the bench who could play center, or power forward, though he was a little undersized, but he was so tough and so strong, he could do both. Uh, You had tremendous defenders. You had tremendous shooters, of course, Manu Ginobili, like Tony Parker, coming into his own early in his career. You had guys who would be tough and you couldn't score on. You had guys who would light you up from outside, create space for Robinson and Duncan in the paint. And you had mentally tough players who would not, you know, if the game was on the line, they didn't shirk. They didn't blink. They were just ready. The game's on the line. Give me the ball. They had multiple guys who were in that situation. And that's the thing about this Spurs team. And I say this, I was never a Spurs fan. I don't say this as a fan. This was the beginning of the era where the San Antonio Spurs kind of won me over, not really as a fan, but as someone who just appreciated them as a team, the way the front office did business. The way the coaching staff was given, hey, if you if you didn't get along with Greg Popovich, bye. You better start packing because you're going to be traded quick. Uh, it was a it was a no nonsense, very hard nosed approach to the game, and the Spurs established that as uh, a way of winning over two decades. And this team was at the early part of that dominance. Can you talk to
1: me about the playoff run? They had here. Uh, they knocked out the Lakers in the second round, went to the Mavs in, in the uh, in the conference finals, and it almost felt like the, holy crap, we just knocked out the Lakers mentality.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Derek Fisher, Mister Moneyball. Well, and the first round was Phoenix. You, the thing is, you're tested. Through the through the playoffs to get to the finals, you have to be able to adjust your lineup and go. Uh, of course, against the Lakers, you've got to go big. Against the Spurs, against the Suns, they had to run right because that was the Stephon Marbury, right before the Steve Nash uh, era. You had to, there was some run and gun. You had to be able to cover the three point line as well as the paint. And uh, the Lakers, of course, tested them more so in the paint, but some outside as well. And I think each, it's, the playoffs are like a crucible. When you're trying to get to the finals, you have to be able to counter different things. And obviously, with each progressive round, you're playing against a better team that's better at certain things. And you've got to have the personnel, first of all, and the coaching, second of all, and the mentality, third. Uh, and this particular Spurs team had that, they had the outside shooting. They had the inside game. They had perimeter defense. They had interior defense. They, had, they were tested at each round. You had to more take care of the perimeter and the mid-range against the Suns. Then you had to cover inside out with the Lakers. They had all the pieces necessary to do that. And it's very difficult to have a roster that can handle an incredible inside game as well as an incredible outside game and have different guys play those different roles in each series. And that's one of the things that makes this Spurs team, and and to their credit, though the personnel changed somewhat, they were able to maintain that for you know until now. They don't really have it now, but they had a lot of years where they were able to match the strengths of all the different teams they encountered, no matter where those teams' strengths were. And this was also the Phoenix Suns series where.
1: Uh, Amari Stoudemire hit a game winner in San Antonio to take game one. Yeah. Um, And winning in San
0: Antonio. I mean, wow. That's, (laughs) that Spurs crowd. That was a a big deal.
1: That was a big deal. Yeah. (laughs) your coming out party. That was, that was Amari's coming out party. It's like, okay.
0: It really was. You
1: finally figure out, Oh, this is Amari Stoudemire. He was a rookie. And yeah, uh, second round against the Lakers. I know we were just talking about it. I also felt here. And you can tell me correctly if I'm wrong, because, again, you were around the Western Conference a lot more. I felt like after three championships, this was a Laker team that the key components for around Kobe and Shaq were disappearing, and they were not, didn't have a lot of the same contributors that they had had in the past to help fill in the blanks around them. And as I'm not saying this was the season that had the love affair issues where Shaq and Kobe couldn't stand each other. That happened the following year. But you look at what happened with this Lakely team, and it felt like they just ran out of gas after three years of of being champions. It just looked like the, the, they put the, they were they were riding they were riding that car and they were riding on empty for so long that the the tank just emptied on on them
0: well, yeah, and this is uh you don't want to mention Robert Corey, do you oh yeah <laughs> that happens ah. uh you know you're <laughs> You're on top for a certain amount of time, and this is what makes the Spurs run of two decades and we're about we're embarking on season twenty three They have made the playoffs for twenty two straight years. I don't know how they're going to do it this year, but if they do, it's a record uh and so you're talking about a team that while the the Lakers had had their ebb and they were starting to flow. Uh, you know they were starting to to come uh, revert back and of course then as you mentioned tension started to rise and all of a sudden now Shaq and Kobe have what has turned into a lifelong thing now They're still going at it um it's hard to maintain that oh, I, and uh, yeah whereas the crazy. Spurs
1: it's crazy now yeah
0: yeah their their relationship is is <laughs> you know it's nuts it's the
1: weirdest uh, though thing though if i it had really to choose it is is the weirdest thing
0: It is. If I had to choose one over the other, I would take Kobe because he was just incredible. You know, much as Shaq was great, Uh, but so you have a Lakers team.
1: Yeah,
0: that's that's a whole. That's two shows, Shaq versus Kobe. But uh, you know, that's although I will say one of my all-time favorite Shaq moments was when Barkley said that uh, Dwayne Wade had to carry Shaq. To the finals and Shaq holds up his finals MVP ring and <laughs> like hold my beer asshole you know because I've never cared for Barkley he he speaks before he thinks you know <laughs> but
1: uh, you know that that's a Lakers
0: team that was that was getting on the downhill slope of their peak and uh, you had a Spurs team that was ready for them you know I, I think fans may have said wow we beat the we beat the lakers but i don't the spurs certainly didn't go into the series that way and that's a credit to Phil, to uh, to greg popovich because greg popovich had them believing that you're the you're the favorite go out there and beat them you've got this team and i think bruce bowen had a lot to do with that uh, the only player who has ever defended Kobe bryant as well as bruce bowen is shane Battier. if you don't believe me go to youtube and look up shane Battier guarding kobe bryant Uh, You know, it's remarkable the way that Shane was always on him. But Bruce Bowen was there uh, making life hard for Kobe. And then you had Duncan and and Robinson making life hard for Shaq and daring someone else to beat them. And while Ori is a (laughs) perennial uh, favorite to be in that situation, the Spurs just had too darn many people that were good at too darn many things.
1: Talk to me about the Western Conference Finals against Dallas that year yeah the Battle of Texas. do you think that that Western Conference final had the appeal that the league was looking
0: for? I don't know about that. I think the Houston, San, for whatever reason, Houston always had more has always had more appeal than doubt. Uh, and so the many years and I stand here looking at at-shirt quilt that my mom made me. That has all I gave her a, all my rockets. Well, not all. I still have a bunch more, but a lot of my rockets, playoffs and finals shirts, and some of them are that that uh, Texas shootout, where it was uh, the Rockets and Spurs had so many great battles. But being in Dallas, that was that was great for me. Dirk Nowitzki versus Tim Duncan. You know these are iconic guys. As we look now, a number of years, fifteen years later. Uh, those are two of the greatest power forwards of all time but at the time they're both entering into their primes and you got to watch a premier matchup between Dirk and Duncan and it was the it was not going to be those two that determined the outcome of the series it was going to be the supporting cast and obviously San Antonio had the better supporting cast but just to watch to be courtside uh, and be able to watch those two go to battle you know i no matter i, I didn't want to really root for one team or the other the only reason I really preferred Dallas was I could be home in the finals instead of being in San Antonio during the finals um, but my sister lives down there, I, if I was in San Antonio I was staying with my sister, it was great So, but, but just to watch that battle was uh, something else, it was so intense the, the atmosphere in the buildings both buildings, uh, it's always that way in San Antonio, Dallas it's hit or miss but when the Mavericks were playing that well Uh, The the atmosphere in American Airlines Center was incredible. And just to be there and be a part of it, it was, I mean, honestly, it was a privilege. Regardless of who won, it was a privilege to be able to sit from that vantage point and watch two of the all-time NBA great players go head-to-head. It was just a phenomenal experience. Obviously, the... Spurs took down the
1: Mavs, which I think this might have been the series where Steve Nash pretty much said, yeah, um, we're going to be making some changes at the end of my contract.
0: Yeah, well, it was tough. Um, You know, Steve Nash, although I'll say this, having been, you know, intimately familiar with both players and and courtside and and involved and, and knowing better than some both players, throughout their careers, if Steve Nash had not left Dallas, neither he nor Dirk become the players that they became. It just doesn't happen because Nash and Nowitzki together were having a little too much fun off the court to be as focused (laughs) and as, and I'm just saying that in the nicest way possible because I love both those guys. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't denigrate either of them for any reason. But the situation when, and I remember standing in the Mavericks locker room when we learned that Steve had chosen Phoenix, sort of the air left the locker room. I was standing in the middle of the Mavericks locker room when we learned that, and it was like, what? Uh, Everyone was just speechless. But Steve and Dirk separately both evolved into MVP players. They took responsibility for their team in a way that they didn't do together because they were such good friends and both so talented. They were a little too busy deferring to each other uh, as opposed to saying, okay, this is my team, and I'm going to determine the outcome of this game. And we saw both of them. Of course, Nash was all his MVPs, Dirk eventually. Few trips to the finals, an MVP, a finals MVP. Both of those players took that responsibility separately that they didn't do together, and I don't know if they would have. So as much as the separation was just horrifying in the moment, it turned out to be amazing for both of those guys uh, separate. Well,
1: let's talk about it. It's the NBA Finals. The San Antonio Spurs hosting the New Jersey Nets. The Nets had been had a 10-day layoff. I looked it up before. It was a 10-day layoff from when they won the Eastern Conference Championship by sweeping the Spurs. And they went down to San Antonio and actually came out of the bat like a more rested team, obviously, than San Antonio did. But San Antonio ended up taking away game one, and they ended up taking away game two in San Antonio. And the Nets came back and bounced back to win the, to win Game Three. Did you travel to New Jersey for the uh, for, for the three nope. home games in the Meadowlands?
0: No, we had somebody that covered all the East Coast games. We had re- sort of regional guys, so and girls. So I don't remember who was responsible for New Jersey at that point. Might have been, might have been Tommy Beer. Uh, that's been a year or two ago, <laughs> but I was. So, no, I, I sat and watched uh, Duncan just, you know, his game one performance, 32 points, 20 rebounds, just as dominant as any player has ever been in the, in the playoffs. You know, game one uh, where the Spurs scored an uncharacteristic 101 points. No, I, I was not in, the, in New Jersey, but I did stay in San Antonio for the, for the duration of that series to see the eventual champions win.
1: My your takeaways from on um, different guys. Well, let's talk about you know game one and game two in San Antonio. Did New Jersey just look totally overmatched? Did you
0: feel? Well, they did, and it's it's tough. As I said before, San Antonio is that's the, that building is just insane. As much as uh, Texas A&M has a has a reputation for their crowd being uh, the 12th man on the court or on the field, the Spurs arena is absolutely, you know, it's a factor. <laughs> Trying to win in San Antonio is very, very, very tough. Uh, and when you have the balanced attack that the Spurs came out with, you had uh, five guys scoring double figures, you have uh, Manny Ginobili off the bench, He was one of the best six men in the league throughout his career, Um, and, you know, had a tremendous performance that is not necessarily reflected in his points scored, but more so in his all-around game. Um, Just guys that were, you know, phenomenal and feeding off of that energy. It's all about defense. And, hey, Greg Popovich talked about, you know, offense comes and goes. But defense is effort. And you can win a game based on your – you should plan to win based on your defense. If your offense happens to be firing on all thrusters and you score a bunch of points, great. But you're going to win based on your defense. And that's what we saw in game one. The Spurs uh, held San Antonio, or held New Jersey to 89 points. They scored 101, uh, and that was, you know, 37% shooting from the Nets. Really everything San Antonio wanted to do, they did. Uh, and so it, that was, you know, that was the expected result for game one.
1: And it didn't get much better for uh, well, it did get better for New Jersey in game two as they ended up stealing it by a point, And they came in Mutombo came off the bench, and it was like it was like almost like Byron Scott realized, "Oh yeah, you uh, <laughs> you're, you play here." It was like the yeah. worst kept kept secret. You know what I mean? Like I didn't get it. D- did you understand that what was going on there with that?
0: No, I really didn't. Um, and when you figure the impact that he had on the game. Um... You know why? Why wouldn't you when, when you're playing against Tim Robbins, uh, Tim Lutton and David Robinson? You need, certainly need the size, if nothing else. you can just stand in there and hold your arms up, um, you know. But also, the Spurs didn't didn't shoot as well. They didn't defend as well as they did in Game One. I I think there's a tendency to let up when you've had uh, I say easy. No win in the NBA is easy, but they won by double figures. The first game. Yeah. There's a, there can be a tendency to let up. And that's what we saw in game two. The Spurs just simply didn't quite, by two points, didn't bring the, <laughs> bring the level of intensity. Yeah. I, but they didn't waste any time getting the home court advantage right back the next game.
1: And, and talk about opposites, uh, opposite with roles. Jason Kidd, 30 points. Kidd, Kidd and uh, Lucius Harris led the Nets and rebounded with seven fours each. And Kenya Martin had four assists, which led the Nets, which is very uncharacteristic. The Jason Kidd is not leading the Nets in the assist department. But at the same time, look, when, when it's the NBA Finals, you want to scratch, claw, and do whatever you have to do to win. Uh, Spurs led by Tony Parker, 21 points, 12 boards by Tim Duncan, five assists by Tony Parker. Game two is just a very, I don't know. Bill, I just was one of those, I was happy that they won because even though I was working for the team at that point, there was that little inner fan in me was just jumping up and down like a little child because I wanted that, you know, like you want it. Like even as an intern, I would have gotten a ring. People would have said, what did you do for your college internship? I was like, yeah, I won a championship. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So let's, let's move into game three. I was in the arena, 20,049 fans in the building. New Jersey falls 84 to 79. Kenny Martin 23 points, 11 boards. Jason Kidd had 11 assists. Um, Tony Parker 26 points. Duncan with a 16 boards and seven assists. Yeah. And of course, you know Nets only were able to muster 21 points up in the first quarter. They 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 called this game one of the worst games in Finals history, especially in the first half. That it was. Uh, you know, it was 33 20, 29 at the half. Or 33 30, 30 at the half. I apologize.
0: One of the worst. Yeah. Well, you've got to look at the training. adjustments. Yeah. You know, San Antonio, Greg Popovich is the all time best in terms of making adjustments. Uh, and so Jason Kidd, who had a tremendous game in game two, goes 6 for 19 and shoots 31% in game three. And Lucius Harris, who was a, a big factor in game two, one for six. They're minus 17 with him on the court in Game Three. Uh, this is a reflection of the adjustments that the Spurs made. Uh, you know, you're you're feeding it through Duncan and Parker, um, and they are just, you know, they're they're going in and and tearing things up. And Duncan, great. You're going to double team me, then there's where the seven assists kick in. I'm going to just kick it out to somebody who's open, and the Spurs shot a much better. 42% overall, but they shot 50% from three, which is a reflection of, um, you know, Tony Parker again. Hey, you, you, can't, you can't talk about Tony Parker's shooting without giving credit to Chip England because when Tony Parker came in the league, if he was outside of about 12 feet, you just wanted him to shoot. Go ahead, buddy. You shoot that ball. When Chip England started working with him, <laughs> still Spurs assistant coach, Chip England, he's, one of, he's still their shooting coach. When he started working with Tony, all of a sudden you couldn't leave Tony open from anywhere it's when he started becoming a factor from three-point range and in game three four for six and most nights you would love for tony parker to to shoot threes Um, and this was a reflection of that middle part of his career where he became deadly from everywhere Uh, and this game uh, absolutely hinged on him knocking down those those open shots
1: and by the way if you want to talk about a you were mentioning before about the rosters Take a look at the roster that the Splitters had here—a very veteran group. You have Bruce Bowen, Speedy Claxton, Tim Duncan, Danny Ferry, Manager Noby, Stephen Jackson, Steve Kerr, Tony Parker, David Robinson, Malik Rose, Steve Smith, and Kevin Willis. Um, and by the way, if you want to bet a dollar that it sticks in the craw of Dominique Wilkins that Kevin Willis has a ring and he doesn't, I'll be glad to bet you that dollar. Because <laughs> I guarantee you, I'd win that bet. Um, so, with that being said. <laughs> Although course, Tim Duncan, uh, Dominique Wilkins
0: does deserve credit for the—he <laughs> doesn't get a ring, but he deserves credit because he's part of the reason that Tim Duncan wound up in San Antonio. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. That's
1: that's so true. Uh, with that being said, moving on to Game Three again, twenty thousand forty-nine in the uh, in the swamp, and the Nets win seventy-seven, seventy-six. 20 points, 13 boards for Kenya Martin, Jason, Jason Kidd. Another, another stellar game. You can't ask anything more. 23 points from Tim Duncan, 17 boards. This, this game, it, it felt like in this series that if the Nets didn't win a close game, they, were gonna, they weren't going to get it. They, there was no way that they were going to blow out the Spurs. But look Just reading that roster that San Antonio has, there's a lot of veterans there who, who knew how to make big plays Whereas when you look at the Nets roster, and I didn't give the Nets roster out, you had Jason Collins, Lucius Harris, Richard Jefferson, Anthony Johnson, Jason Kidd, Gary Kittles, Kenny Martin, Dekemba Mutombo, Rodney Rogers, Brian Scalabrini, Aaron Williams, and Tamar Slade. I know there's a lot of guys there, Bill, that put the fear in your heart. Um, apparently, did not put the fear in the Spurs' heart. No. But apparently, uh, Bill, you still claim that you can beat Brian Scalabrini in a one-on-one game. So I know he does not put the fear of life into you. So, okay. So with that being said, (laughs) um, from your perspective, Nets tied a series at two. Again, looking at the, the game summary box scores and remembering back in the atmosphere being in the arena, never felt like New Jersey really had control of this series.
0: Well, no, because by winning this game, all it means is you could have just said the home team won. You know, after four games, it's two and two. So essentially the home home team, you could have said they just won their home games. Uh, And again, let's talk about adjustments because here Tony Parker had gone off on Jason Kidd in game three. And in game four, Jason Kidd was very, very focused and remembered that Tony could hit those threes and didn't give him the space to do it. And Parker was one for 12. He only scored three points in that game. So the Spurs were using their defense to stay in the game when their offense was not firing, and, you know, that's why you have the low score. San Antonio has always been a team until about three or four years ago when Pop made that adjustment to say, hey, my guys are older now. They can't play that kind of defense. We're going to play more of an offensive game. But for a good 17 years, the Spurs were the hands-down best defensive team in the league. If they focused their defense on you, you weren't going to score so, uh but kidd, a great defender in his own right throughout his career, was really the reason for this win in that he limited Parker, so you have Duncan getting well, his numbers, you have David Robinson, you know Stephen Jackson couldn't hit he was a streaky shooter, but the key matchup was again that that kid Parker matchup where Kid got the better of Tony in that game
1: well, and there was also one key thing that you left out here this was also game game four where the Nets ended up making, uh, getting that win. The Nets didn't make an offense, uh, I'm sorry, defensive adjustment where they, because of Jason's ankle from getting hurt in the Eastern Conference Finals, made a switch where Kerry Kittles went against Tony Parker so they had a longer guard on Tony so Tony was not able to get to the basket as easily as he was because Kerry was a bigger guard. And they figured if they were going to do that, they were going to let whoever the two-guard was go to town on Jason because Tony was killing them
0: in Game 3. Well, and Bowen was the two-guard at that point, and he was not – they were never going to run their offense through Bruce Bowen. I mean, if he was open in that corner, he was deadly. But uh, that – I forgot about that. That switch made perfect sense because the ball was going to go through Tony. Nothing was going to make the ball go through Bruce Bowen. So you could, in essence, hide Jason Kidd's uh, injury. You could hide that by having him just kind of stay out there and keep a hand up on Bruce because if Bruce wasn't open, he, he wasn't going to put the ball on the floor and go by you and create offense. And that brings us over to game five where
1: it was a point guard other than Tony Parker hitting big shots. You knew who it was. Let's see if you remember who it was here, Bill. Who the big shots in game, in game five where I even – even I said, I was like, man, I loved him when he was playing with uh, who you and I consider the greatest player of all time. But now that he's hitting it against my nets, I was not happy.
0: <laughs> I don't know who hit the big one in that game.
1: That was Steve Kerr hit off, came off the bench and was hitting big shots in game, in game five, which led to the downfall and a 10-point win, 93-83 over New Jersey. Tim Duncan, 29 points, 17 boards, and he also had four assists to go with it. Jason Kidd. Led the way with 29.7 assists. Kenyon Martin played with a flu that game. And the Nets also went old school, went back to their early, you know, late 70s, early 80s uniforms with the stars down the side. Not that anyone cares about that aspect, but I thought it was cool. Um, (laughs) Bill, this was a little bit more of a dominant performance by the Spurs. Uh, It looks like the talent sort of took over on this one. What was your what was your basic feedback about Game Five? Obviously, it's it's the game changer because you're one win away from the championship.
0: Well, it is, and you had a great performance from your starting rotation, but also the second unit came up big with with both. Uh, Manu, of course, was brilliant, and Malik Rose uh, made an impact off the bench. Kerr, you mentioned a couple shots, but uh, you know I def- I remember Steve Kerr. One of the games in Dallas in the previous, he was just unconscious. It was one of those. You remember when Jordan hit the three against Portland and just kind of shrugged and was like, "I don't know, just everything's going in." Kerr had one of those games too. So he was the kind of guy that, even at this point, which is late in his playing career, uh, really felt no pressure. He would just, if he was open, he'd hit the shot. Um, uh, but it was still, you know, Parker had a much better game. Duncan was completely the best big man in the league showing that he was the best big man in the league. Uh, And like you said, the, the talent shows through talent. And I always say coaching, because you got to put the right players in the right positions at the right time to be effective. And at a time where David Robinson was really showing his age and wasn't much of a factor in this game. In fact, fouled out with only six points in less than 20 minutes. um, Duncan just, it, it, it was all him and he made everything work.
1: Back to San Antonio, where the Nets actually had control of this game. Um, this is where, as the Nets fan in me, I wanted to go over to Byron Scott's office when they got back to New Jersey after losing this game. I <laughs> wanted to strangle him for his bonehead decision-making. The Nets fall 88-77, led by Jason Kidd, 21 uh, points, 7 assists. Kenny Martin had 10 boards. Tim Duncan, of course, the finals MVP, 21 points, 20 boards, 10 assists, triple-double in the finals. Look, I'm all for when you're playing in a 12-year-old, 13-year-old rec league, you want to make sure everybody plays. But when the Nets are up nine and midway through the third quarter, let's not all of a sudden take the guys who got you that lead and take them out of the game and put Lucius Harris and Rodney Rodgers in. I'm sorry, I I have to be critical (laughs) for for Byron because Lucius, who had only played five minutes after that point, was 0-4 from the field. I believe it was 0-4 from the field. And Rodney, who hadn't even stepped on the court yet, it was bad decision yeah. making. And then by you give up, and
0: Scott. then you wind up letting the momentum swing, you give up thirty-one points in the fourth quarter and only score fourteen yourself. Uh yeah. If you're going you if you want to play chess, don't play it against Greg Popovich, because Greg Popovich is going to see every mistake that you make and take full advantage of it. And you didn't see uh Kevin Willis and Danny Ferry playing twenty minutes in that game. <laughs> he put the pedal to the middle. No! Kept the guys no, on so the crazy. court who had gotten them there, and they just took full advantage of that.
1: Tim, by winning this game, Tim Duncan became the eighth player in NBA history to win the Finals MVP for a second time. He joined Willis Reed, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Kimo Elijah, and Shaquille O'Neal. In the series clinching game, Duncan came two blocks shy of a quadruple double.
0: Yep, eight um, blocks.
1: The, Yep. Steve Kerr joined Dennis Johnson, Bill Walton, Dennis Rodman, Ron Harper, and Robert Ori as the only player to win at least two championships with two franchises. Kerr won three with the Bulls and two with the Spurs. Robert Ori won, won two titles with Houston, three with the Lakers, and then went on to win two more with San Antonio. So, um, the impact of the series, look, despite a great performance in particular barrage of three-pointers, uh, Steven Jackson, Steven Jackson, the Spurs let Jackson leave as a free agent. Current uh, Danny Ferry, and David Robinson retired. Duncan and Robinson were named the Sportsman of the Year back in 2003. And this also marked the first time in two ABA franchises met in the NBA Finals. Bill, your yeah. opinion, what was the lasting effect of this series? Uh, if you want to give the San Antonio side, and I can give the New Jersey side.
0: Sure. I mean, I think this was sending David Robinson out in style. This was the end of one era and the beginning of another officially, although the Tim Duncan era really had kind of already started because he was so incredibly good. Um, I This was a point where the older guard, Avery Johnson, was already gone. Um, you know, some of the older spurs that were there for the first championship were already gone, and you were then, you had this ushering in of the new guard who were showing they were up for the challenge. Uh, Tony Parker came up huge in a couple of the games. Manu was always great. Uh, And Duncan, of course, I mean, he's Tim Duncan, the greatest power forward of all time. So this was the point where that team became the team um, as opposed to David Robinson being a significant part of that. This was the point where they said, okay, David, we're, we're going out on top and we're okay. You can go ahead and retire and we're good. And they were, and they won multiple championships and, and proved that that was true. And David was courtside for all of them and, and proud of the franchise that he really helped put on the map. As much as George Girvin back in the day, David Robinson was the one that brought the NBA Spurs into prominence. And uh, Tim Duncan took it from there and took it to the next level.
1: From a Nets perspective, Bill, um, Jason Kidd was, re- was an unrestricted free agent. Where was he going to go? Was the big question. And the Nets, uh, the Nets had to worry because Jason was flirting with San Antonio. It's almost like a Kevin Durant situation if that would have happened. But he decided to stay with New Jersey when the Nets made a commitment to pick up Alonzo Mourning, who was fighting his kidney issues. Uh, and uh, so yeah. the Nets were poised. The Nets were poised to having Alonzo Mourning, Kevin Mutombo, Kenyon Martin. And, and a few other solid veterans, but then the Nets decided to move the Kemi Mutombo, oh, sorry, wave the Kemi Mutombo. Alonzo Morty lasted 25 uh, games into the Nets' season, and they re- were able to re-sign Jason Kidd from it. The Nets went into that following year to the second round of the, uh, to the, in the playoffs against the Detroit Pistons and falling in Epic Game 7. They got blown out in Game 7, but they had a, tr- a triple overtime classic in Detroit for Game 5, where everybody, including Brian Scalabrini, got in on the act. Uh, and that was the end of the Kenyon Martin era in New Jersey. The Nets extended Richard Jefferson, gave him, a, gave him a six-year, $74 million contract at the time. Jason stuck around, but had knee surgery, and missed the first month of the following year. And the Nets did not want to give Kenyon Martin 80, sorry, $92 million, and he signed a five-year $82 million worth of Denver Nuggets, which the Nets did not match, and did a sign and trade for three draft picks. The draft picks ended up uh, being worked into a deal later the following year to bring Vince Carter to New Jersey. But the Nets never really seemed to regain their poise and get past that second round and get back to the finals without Kenyon Martin. I think, Bill, you and I both can agree that Jason Kidd really wanted to have a shot at the title And the Nets, under new ownership, were just not willing to commit financially to, to get that for Jason. But Rod Thorne was always trying to be creative of what he was able to find as far as talent in different places. But for Jason, it just never really panned out in New Jersey, which is a shame because that was his team. When he went back to Dallas to play with Dirk, he was playing as a secondary role to Dirk. And it's a shame that Jason was never able to lead his guys to a championship.
0: Well, it's tough because when, you know, winning a championship is expensive. <laughs> it's expensive as hell. And a lot of teams, a lot of owners uh, aren't willing at the end of the day to make the financial commitment that it takes to win a title. And we've seen that time and time again. Hey, imagine how good the Oklahoma City Thunder would be right now if Thunder ownership was okay with three max deals. Uh, and you have Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden. I mean, how how tough is it to beat that team? But that didn't trans that didn't uh, transpire because they didn't want to give Harden a max contract. So they wound up, of course, dealing him to Houston. Uh, and then that team just never, you know, then uh, that that team is now none of those guys are there anymore. <laughs> so and that's one example. There are many where ownership not being not having the stomach for the price tag didn't get the team back uh, to where it could have been. And, and that's a, it's a very hard decision to make. I mean, you talk about the luxury tax. There are teams paying the luxury tax that don't get to the finals, and, and it's a lot of money to spend. And, I mean, hell, if the Clippers don't make it to the finals this year, wow, I mean, their owner is extremely rich, but that's a heck of a lot of money to spend to not win the championship. And many owners yeah. just aren't willing to do that. All right, Bill. So we 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 conquered another
1: one. This is a good one. This is uh, this is five five or six shows in. You haven't killed me yet. This is a good sign. And uh, <laughs> you know, next week we're gonna, we'll we'll decide what topic we're going to do during this week. But I think the last thing legacy in my mind for the Nets was for the Nets Spurs series was this was the ending of the old guard with David Robinson, and I also think that. This also showed a major disparity in the Eastern Conference talent level compared to the Western Conference talent level. As we were just discussing, the Nets' two victories were by a, a combined four points over San Antonio, Yeah. whereas the Spurs had a couple of games when they were double-digit winners. So I think that was the one major takeaway that I was able to take away, is the talent level in the East compared to the West was very telling.
0: Yeah, it really was. Still is to this day. Yeah. Still is.
1: You can follow Bill on Twitter at the Rocket Guy. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at RandyBSP. And of course, Bill, you're all over BackSportsPage.com. Hey, we you know we're starting to get some traction, and these guys that we're working with
0: are really coming along. Well, I'm proud of our young guys. I, I kind of like uh, the Spurs developing young talent. I like uh, where I myself prefer doing the radio and that kind of stuff, podcasting. Uh, I've done a lot of writing, and we've got some people who are hungry, and are coming to me and saying, "Hey, I've got an event with the Bulls, or I've got an event with the Clippers, or I've got an event with the Celtics," and we're developing them, helping them uh, understand what it means, what's a good story, and what to do with it <laughs> once you've got it. And I'm really proud of the effort that our that our guys are showing, and I, and I look forward to continuing to develop them. and And I think those of you who are listening and are and are reading will appreciate. Uh, the marked improvement that you'll see in them. And, of course, i got to give a shout-out to Tracy Graven, one of my all-time favorite coworkers in multiple different projects. And he's fabulous running our digital side and doing the, uh, the um, social media promotion type stuff and working with our guys, too. So there's going to be some exciting things happening at backsportspage.com this season. And uh, you'll want to tune in and, and log in and, and check out what we're doing. Bill?
1: We'll do this again in. Uh, we'll do this again in seven days. How's that?
0: Always a pleasure, my friend.
1: You got it. We'll see you then. Thanks, everyone, for uh, tuning in. Always appreciate it. Hoopstalk Live. We'll see you guys next week.